All right. Welcome. Welcome to my podcast, Growing Good Humans. My name is Lara Barr. I'm the owner and founder of Emerging Educational Consulting. We provide one-to-one -one mentorships for students from the beginning to the end of the college application process. My mantra is we're in the business of raising good humans and what better way to do that than providing families with education and information. So today we are so lucky to have Laura Baker here. She already knows that I am a huge fan. I've been following Laura's boot camps and anything I can get my hands on that she writes or talks about in the raising of good humans, specifically around raising kids in the context of a very litigious society that we live in and one that doesn't always protect our kids, interestingly enough. Laura, will you take a second to just introduce yourself and then we're just going to dive in with questions. Sure. Hello, everybody. So I am Laura Baker. I am a private practice criminal trial lawyer. Over the years, my classically criminal defense practice has morphed into a juvenile defense practice, which includes criminal allegations as well as Title IX cases and a variety of things. I practice at Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher. And so we are busy all the time with cases involving kids who've gotten in trouble. I'm so happy that you are here. I'm so sorry that you have to be so busy. Why are you so busy? Let's start with that. Sure. Well, times are different than they used to be. I think when I was growing up, we didn't see kids charged criminally the way they are now. We live in a society where social media has taken on a life of its own. Kids have cell phones. There's a lot more access to information that kids didn't used to have. And we also have a school system that is required in many cases to report instances of sexual misconduct and child abuse and also an obligation to initiate Title IX investigations. So it is busy. We have way too many kids involved in the legal process and parents who grew up as I did, not really understanding or naive to the fact that your kid could get in trouble and you really need help when that happens. Some people in my audience might feel like it's a little extreme. Like why is Laura Barr bringing in Laura Baker, criminal defense lawyer to talk about like raising good humans to go to college. And I think what is what you and I have in common is this desire to really spread the news that these, these situations aren't happening to like really evil, bad kids. This, some of this stuff, that's not to say there aren't some situations that are pretty drastic. And I want to honor that in all of these conversations. But what we're here today is talk about just everyday regular families whose kids get into what we used to call mischief but ends up being something pretty drastic. And there is a place on the common app that says, have you ever been suspended? Do you have a felony? You know, those are questions that I really don't want students to have to, or the box, I don't want them to have to mark. So let's go back to the cell phones. Um, I think that really is the biggest game changer in when I was raising kids, even compared till now. So what is your stand on monitoring kids' cell phones? What age is the right age to give a kid a phone? And how, in your experience, have kids gotten in trouble? Keep in mind, um, our audience is going to be middle to high school. Okay, so that's the perfect age. And some people have already made a decision to give kids a cell phone, and some are still on the fence about it. 
Let me say this. Cell phones, probably my guess is a thousand to one. I have more cell phones that are the vehicle to the commission of a crime where a juvenile is concerned than the vehicle is. We spend all this time teaching our kids how to drive and safely drive and teaching them, you know, who to be in the car and how to interact with people in the car. And yet we have so many cases involving a cell phone. It's hard for me because I can't tell parents how to parent. I'm conservative because I'm biased based on the work that I do. But the best piece of advice I can give to parents is cell phones are not just evidence in a criminal case or a way for kids to commit a crime, but we all know the perils about the social emotional problems that come with the constant pinging of a cell phone. So the two pieces of advice that I give parents is, don't give your kids a cell phone until you are prepared to monitor it completely. And I get asked the question all the time, are you kidding me? I need to monitor everything my 13 year old does on the cell phone. The answer is yes you do because they could be getting bullied. They could be being targeted. I've had cases where kids have been victimized through their cell phone. They've received fraud alerts. I received a fraud alert on my cell phone yesterday. Had I not known what I was doing, I would have fallen prey to this sort of fraud scheme that came to me on my cell phone. But more importantly, kids are using their cell phones to commit crimes, to bully each other. It becomes evidence in a case where your kid could become a witness to the case. I could spend the next five hours talking about it. So I think the best piece of advice, and that was, that was number one, monitor it. And number two is when you think your child has the maturity and judgment to separate themselves from something they may receive. Not all kids are at the same level of maturity. And I understand their social interaction that needs to occur via a cell phone for some kids. But if, if your kid is still susceptible to influence or to depression or to other conditions where your kids might get pulled in and you don't have control of it, it's probably not time for a cell phone. You can call them on a watch. They can call you on their watch. Do you have a, a suggestion of an actual device? Like what would be a watch that someone could go buy today? I, well, I have little kids, so we use the Gizmo watch. This is not an advertisement for Verizon, yes. but we use the Gizmo watch. I think, you know, kids can have an Apple watch. I think the key for me and the rule for, for my family when they get a cell phone is a cell phone doesn't have to have smart access during the day. There really is no reason a kid needs to be on TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram while they're in school, during their school day. And so set limits and parameters around how they're using it. Believe me, it's terribly important. I get asked all the time, what kind of monitoring um, application can you use? Talk to your service provider in terms of the types of phone you have. My forensic technical guy who I rely on uses a program called Bark, which many people have now heard of, that allows you to flag and signal certain words so that you know, you can be monitoring the nature of the discussions. That's great. I use Bark for um, my stepdaughters because of that 
very reason. And that was advice that you had given a while back. And obviously we're not promoting any one thing, but sometimes it's hard for families. I don't like to give them advice without saying, try this, because it's hard to navigate when you're searching all of that. Let's talk about Snapchat for a second. One of the first things I say to families or students when I start working with them is I say, you do understand that things don't disappear on Snapchat. And I want you to support me in that because people are often shocked. Yeah, I, I will say this and, you know, this is my personal opinion about Snapchat, but Snapchat is the bane of my existence as a lawyer. I think kids really believe that Snapchat deletes itself. In every juvenile case I've had that has really um, gone the distance or we've ended up in a courtroom, there's a program called Celebrate that can pull back everything a kid discussed by a Snapchat. And that almost inevitably becomes evidence that makes or breaks the case. But it's not just that. I mean, the purpose of Snapchat is to hide things from people. I mean, let, otherwise your kid would be text messaging. So just as a fundamental sort of as a threshold matter, you have to think about why do they need Snapchat and for what purpose. I will not allow my children to have Snapchat. When I have conversations like this, I'm just sometimes grateful I missed all this raising four kids because I'm not sure I could have handle it. I mean, it's just kind of, it is stressful. And I know there's a lot of families whose kids are using chat. Kids are using chat. chat. Snapchat. So it's, it's hard because then you'd like, how do you take it away? And those are questions we can continue to talk about. Let's, let's keep diving into this hard, difficult stuff. I want to talk about alcohol, use of um, alcohol and marijuana drugs. I think most of us who have been around parenting for a long time, I raised four kids and they're all in their twenties. Stories I hear now is that everybody was drinking back then. Everybody was trying pot back then. And so like if everybody's doing it, number one, is that accurate? What are parents supposed to do? I often hear parents say things parents like, well, I let my kids drink kids in our house where they're house. safe. And I'm like, good luck with that because you might end up in jail. But get my back on that too. That scares the daylights out of me because I've had so many cases where parents have been charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor where a child has a circumstance, everybody's drinking in the basement, the parents provided the alcohol, or at least closed their eyes to the fact that the kids are drinking theirs. And suddenly you have a child who gets injured in your home because they were intoxicated or a crime is committed against the child. I tried a case not long ago where uh, a young woman was sexually assaulted in the home and the parents were sued civilly in addition to criminal liability for having provided the alcohol. I understand it's, it's a dilemma and it, it would be easy for me to stand here and say, don't let your kids drink. But the idea that you're gonna keep your kids safe by facilitating alcohol usage is, is simply not the case. You're exposing yourself, your family, your kids, and other people's kids. I mean, you can think about it in terms of how would you feel if your child went to somebody else's house and that other person provided them alcohol and your child were, was injured because somebody else made a decision to provide alcohol to your child. We see those cases far too often. You know, you have to make a decision as a parent how you're gonna help your kids navigate drinking. I happen to be raised by parents who 
were very strict when it came to that. They always said, we don't have situational ethics. We don't condone you stealing or otherwise breaking the law. And if you're under the age of 21 and you're drinking alcohol, you're breaking the law. So we can't tell you that's okay. I understand the other side of it, that parents are concerned kids are gonna drink. And if we give them a hard line, they're not gonna talk to us about it and they're not gonna come to us about it. I can't weigh into some of those parenting decisions, but we don't have very many criminal cases that don't involve alcohol. And kids just are not ready to manage and navigate whether it's social media and alcohol, bullying, a vehicle, and most predominantly sexual relationships when they've been drinking. And the combination of those two things is a recipe for disaster. At least in where I'm concerned, and I have a big, busy full-time practice with seven lawyers who full-time do this work. So that's my cautionary note. And you're in Denver, right? So it's not like this is just in the city that we're talking about. So imagine we serve families all over the country. So it's crazy how much it makes my heart stop. And just these ideas of like, what can we do to support? And your advice is so valuable. I want to talk for a second about, I know that often law enforcement gets involved sometimes before parents even know. Is there advice whether a student say is at school and law enforcement come, like what are the rules around that? Or say they're at a party and law enforcement comes or they're at a park drinking. Like, is it best, this is gonna sound silly, but is it best for them to drop and run? Is it best for them to stay? Is it best for them to be polite to the police officer? Should they call their parents? Should they talk? Like what's the, what's the, 411 or whatever. Yeah. So the, the first piece of advice I would give parents is to empower your kids to understand their constitutional rights. What that means is you have a constitutional right to remain silent and to ask for a lawyer. So if your kids are out, they're not in your home, they're in a park, they're at the mall, they're at a party, they do have a right to remain silent. And that's important. It's not to counsel your kids to be snarky or to pick a fight with a police officer on the street or to be obstructive. The last thing you want is your kid getting into an argument with a police officer on the street. Their job is hard. The last thing they want to be doing is dealing with a snarky teenager, but they can be taught how to be strong enough and empowered to ask for a lawyer. Sometimes kids want to ask for their parents Those aren't the magic words. The magic words are, I would like to speak to a lawyer. Thank you so much for your contact. Now, I will tell you in a school setting, the advice is slightly different. So often we see kids who have marijuana in their car at school or get in trouble because they posted something on social media and now they're being contacted by the school. The advice there is slightly different. Schools have an obligation to protect the campus and the student body. And so they may bring your child in without your knowledge and want to start talking to your child. At that point, your kid, when the hair is on the back of his or her neck stand up, they need to be empowered to say, you know, I'd like to talk to my parents. 
before I talk with you. I want to listen to what you're telling me, but I'm not prepared to give you any statement until I talk to my parents. Just remember schools have school resource officers. And so sometimes that questioning, even though it should be advised and you should have some sense that your kids are giving a statement, it is often used by law enforcement in the prosecution of a criminal case when it's gathered inside the school. So that is my advice on that topic. Don't be you don't have to be a jerk about it. I love that. And I you gave that. us and you gave us a really great tip on how to respond in a way that is teach your kid to respond with grace and to simply say, I need my parents with me, or I'd like to talk to my parents, use my right to not speak and to have a lawyer. And then I'm happy to speak with you in a nice, re uh, respectful way. So let's dig into sexual behavior accusations. What are you seeing today? And what do you think would be helpful for our families to know? Oh, gosh, how much time do we have? It, it has taken over my practice in terms of dealing with sex offenses. So I'll start first with sexting, which has been um, so extraordinary in the last decade in terms of how much time and not, not just criminal activity, but victimization comes as a result of sexting. I had a principal in, in the Denver public school system say to me, he estimates that 80 to 90% of kids in high school age kids between ninth and 12th grade have sent, received, or viewed an inappropriate sex message, which means it's a nude image of a child. We have to name that. That's child pornography. And it includes the showing of private parts without boring everybody with the recitation of the statute. And those are being used not just um, voluntarily between kids, but also used to bully kids. In Colorado, and I'm only licensed in Colorado, so I'm talking just about Colorado law, although I know that other states have similar circumstances. If you're convicted of a sex offense, you are. Um, required to register as a sex offender. And there are a whole host of things that come with that. So even just the sending, the distribution of a message like that could result in a conviction as a sex offender. It seems extraordinary because these kids are not generally predatory. Usually it's exploratory in some way, but it's often, almost always victimizing another child when you are taking it or sending it and in Colorado, it's a strict liability offense. There's no legal justification to be in possession of any sort of explicit image. As we talk about bigger sex offenses, and that tends to be where I spend the bulk of the focus of my practice, we have kids accusing one another of sexual assault, which is also the term we know as rape. And Consent is really gray. When you look at the statute, the legal statute in Colorado, around what does consent mean? Consent is based on act or attitude that appears to be in cooperation with the person who's initiating the sexual activity. So when you think about how those scenarios come up in our practice, almost always, we have one kid who thinks, well, the other person was 
engaged. They were kissing me. They didn't say no. They were, they seemed to be welcoming the conduct. And the other person, for whatever reason, may describe themselves as being scared or frozen or consenting only to part of the act, not all of the act. And so once two kids, particularly where alcohol is on board and they they can't register consent because they're impaired by alcohol or because they're new to sex and they don't understand the signals and signs, or they think, well, he or she came on to me and they're interested in me and we've exchanged a million Snapchats, so we're good to go. It is a recipe for disaster and it's such a gray area. I think now, in my opinion, where the law is concerned, we just have way too many kids that don't even understand what consent means. And we have way too many kids now that are influenced by what they hear on social media about what sex assault is. Sex assault is not something that you look back and regret. It's not something that you wish you wouldn't have done if you had been sober. It's not something that maybe just hurt or felt uncomfortable or something you wanna hide. And so I've had a number of cases where people have come to me and said, you know, six months ago, my daughter wouldn't have had sex with that guy if she knew what a bad guy that he was. That's not sex assault. Um, so there, there's just a lot of confusion for kids around sex offenses, but the consequences can be extraordinary. I know I could talk forever about that, Laura, but I don't want to drone on unless there's I, I mean, I think there. we could build on that a little bit as far as um, I like how you said, like a parent called me, where do you or a lawyer, where does a lawyer come in and how can they be helpful in situations and what situations are you the most helpful in? Oh, that's a great question. So I think there's a tendency by parents to believe they can handle these things themselves. And so you want to just explain away, look, it's just a misunderstanding. But what happens is we see sex offenses reported in a lot of different ways. Often it comes through safe to tell at school. So one kid tells another kid, hey, I think I was sexually assaulted. And that gets reported to the school. The school then must make a mandatory report. But sometimes the parents don't know that happened. Right. So you get a call from the school or you get a call from another uh, parent saying, hey, I'm hearing this is going on. You can't presume that you know exactly what's happening or that you can explain it away by saying, well, he or she came on to my kid. This was an equal uh, sort of opportunity for both of them, because almost always there is somebody on the other side of this equation who is ahead of you in the process, who has started the investigation and is likely to presume lack of consent based on the victim's story. And so my advice is don't wait to call a lawyer, whether it's me or anybody else who does this work, call at the first sign of an allegation. Because the minute you walk in and start saying to the school, no, no, that's not how it happened, or you start saying that to law enforcement, those statements become part of a case in a way that could really hurt you um, because you don't really know yet what the allegation is. So I'd say the first thing to do before you call the parents of the other kid or anything else, call a lawyer. 
It reminds me of something we um, interviewed. I did a podcast with Hannah Stotland, and she is a lawyer in Boston and an educational consultant. And one of the advice, one of the tips that she said is build relationships with your kids. So if they're in trouble, they come to you first. That it is so helpful when students don't hide from their parents, because just like you said, all these things have happened and then suddenly parents get involved and they're way behind the game because the students were afraid of getting in trouble. And I remember just raising my teens. I used to say, and actually my mom did this for me. This is just how I learned about it. She said, no matter what, I love you. And no matter what trouble you're in or whatever happens, please call me first. I will always pick you up. And so it's kind of the metaphorical, like I have your back. I love you. And knowing that that's something and just saying it, saying that like, and what I'm so curious about is how are schools, parents, doctors, like, how are we getting this information to parents on how to parent in a way that builds that kind of trust? And I think that also includes being able to have difficult conversations about sex and consent and alcohol and really drawing a line in the sand around family values. And, and I feel like there's just still so much information out there that it's hard for parents to know what to do and how to do it. How to do it. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know what, Laura, you may see this as much as I do. I worry more about our kids who go to college, who now at 18 years old think they can handle everything that comes to them. You know, when you have a kid inside your home, you have the, a better ability to monitor their messages. You set them down in the kitchen table at night. I see way too many kids who come to me at 18, 19 years old. And now, by the way, they're, they're considered adults in the judicial system. And they're trying to handle an allegation at the university that's going to initiate a huge Title IX process as well as prospectively a criminal process. And they're going to be treated like an adult. So you have to empower your kids exactly as you're saying, I will always come help you. But if I don't know the answer, I'm going to find somebody who can help us with the answer. Right. I know in our practice, when I do my parent intake, I go through a checklist. And then when, when we say goodbye to our students, we are like, do you know the law of Title IX? Do you know what happened? Do you know what to do? And we really try to talk them through understanding what their rights are because unfortunately you know we always say your kid's going to get to college our goal is to have them stay there and these are the things that if we're not having these conversations there are more and more kids not staying there and they're good people right in yes. in confusing circumstances in my world it often does involve alcohol which is why having these kind kinds of conversations and knowing where to turn to what i'm going to do um when we post this podcast is i'm going to make sure we put any of our resources that we have and Lara, if you have any that you use you could send them and i can post them to the the summary we only have 30 minutes, which I told you at the start, I'm like, this is going to be rough because I could talk to you about this for hours because I care so much about it. Is there anything else you feel like you have to say that would help our parents in the next two minutes? 
I, well, I will say to your last point that the reason we started doing the boot camp that we do in our office and I started speaking to schools was for exactly this reason. It's hard to encapsulate in 30 minutes all that a parent should know about the perils of, of raising kids now, but there are resources available to you through you, through, through our boot camp, and through other places that I'm very happy to consolidate. The thing I would say to parents is don't presume that you know how to handle it yourself. Just ask for help before you walk your kid into a circumstance that feels treacherous. They have constitutional rights and you as their parent need to, to help them protect those rights. I love that. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen with parents is they think their children are too sweet or too kind or raised in such a good family that their children would never do such a thing. And I just want to say, I mean, that was me. I have and raised four kids. They're all in their 20s. But I was surprised over and over again how not great my kids could behave. They were still good humans, but they did things that weren't okay. And it surprised me. And I just, if you are one of those parents, just do yourself a favor and pick up the cell phone tonight when your child is in bed and take a look at what's going on. And, and see if you still feel the same way. <laughs> you know what I would say on that point? It's the really good kids I worry about the most. It's the street smart kids who know how to duck and dodge. <laughs> it's the really sweet, trusting kids who often find themselves in these messes because they don't believe it can happen to them or they, they couldn't see it coming. So yes, we're all raising wonderful kids, but they're going to find trouble at Laura, thank you so much for everything. This has been so valuable, so wonderful, and I can't wait to put this out to the world. Thank you for having me. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>